Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. The strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Prost, Exercise for Prostate Cancer Incorporated, a not-for-profit charity set up in 2012 by myself. Dr. Joe Millions. If you want to know any more information about Prost, including our online service now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health. So, Prost to you. So stop for a second and listen. It's not silent at all. This is Dr. Joe. Every month of September internationally is the month of prostate cancer awareness and education. In your own community, you might hear about bike rides, long lunches. In Australia, the long run by the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. These are all to try and raise the profile and awareness of men getting diagnosed with prostate cancer. Now, in episode four, of the Penis Project podcast, I introduce you to my colleague, Patrick Lombroso, a psychologist that specialised in men's health and in particular, men undergoing radical prostatectomy. Now, as I explained in episode number four, Patrick sadly was diagnosed with a glioblastoma brain tumour and allowed me to interview him in the months before he did actually pass away. So with the permission of his family, I am going to share with you the first of three podcasts that will be shared over the next few months. Today's podcast with Patrick was actually recorded in April of 2017. It's been sitting in my Dropbox folder, not quite sure what to do with it. But listening to his words recently and after talking with Dr. Dangerfield recently in episode 45... Um, about the nerve grafting procedure, it made me really concentrate again on what Patrick's work was all about. So Patrick was very focused on the erectile function, but mostly the quality of life outcomes in men undergoing treatment for prostate cancer. So today's interview, way back four years ago, is all about Patrick's approach to patients and men newly diagnosed with prostate cancer, with a particular focus on the sexual function. Back in 2017, I didn't know that I was going to do a podcast series. I really didn't know how to interview anyone. So I just sat and listened. You won't hear much um, from me. And uh, I think this is a good thing because Patrick's um, words and passion are second to none of all the people I've ever worked with in this space. And so I think it's really um, important that you can just listen to him. The uh, final few words of this particular uh, podcast will just be 
Patrick's um, goals to make sure every man knows about penile rehabilitation. And Melissa has spent quite a bit of time talking about that too. And so you can reflect on previous episodes to look at that. So without any further ado, as we often say, here's to Patrick. It's his fourth um, anniversary since he passed away on September 11th. It's Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. And I'm just so pleased that we can continue to hear Patrick's voice. But just before we hear Patrick, I'm going to replay the first one minute introduction from episode four. So you can get a bit of a picture of how my friendship with Patrick was formed and why I want to bring you his very passionate words. As we always like to introduce a man whose name starts with P, it seems absolutely appropriate to introduce you to my dear, dear friend and recently passed away colleague, psychologist Patrick Lombroso. Now, Patrick was an extremely special man. He was dedicated to the psychology of men undergoing erectile dysfunction and in particular had a passion for men undergoing treatment for prostate cancer. During my time doing a PhD, I attended many conferences across Australia and seemingly there was this big, noisy, Italian, Jewish man always in my corner. You see, not many people actually specialise in talking about penises and erectile dysfunction when you're not a doctor or a urologist. But Patrick and I, there we were, seemingly bumping into each other month after month, year after year, and we couldn't help but have a chat to one another. What I found was the most incredible human being, and he became my friend and my mentor. Our very first conversation actually started with him saying, Joe, I don't feel like I'm on Mars anymore. You speak my language and I speak yours, and boy, are we going to be good friends. Hello. Sitting with me here is Patrick Lombroso, sexual rehabilitation psychologist and director of Man Focus Clinic in Sydney. We're going to be talking a little bit about the quality of life issues in prostate cancer and in men's health generally as an um, experience of Patrick over the last 15 years. Now, Patrick, you've been working for a few years in men's health. How did you actually get there? How did I get there? Well, I started off uh, studying psychology and uh, one day, uh, quite randomly, I attended a lecture on sexual rehabilitation following gynecological cancer. And it was a lecture that I almost missed, but it ended up being one of the most inspiring lectures I ever heard. And that's what led me to doing um, postgraduate um, studies, the PhD work in prostate cancer recovery. Uh, it all came from this one lecture. Okay, so when did you actually set up the Man Focus Clinic? Man Focus Clinic was an extension of an original clinic called the Mind Focus Clinic, which started back in 2010. Um, we decided to specialise in men's sexual health issues uh, probably in about 2012. And uh, as a result of also the work that I was doing in PhD research, um, we found that there was an enormous unmet need especially in helping men following their prostate cancer treatment. Um, it was one of those areas where men weren't receiving any uh, or, or very little assistance in having to adjust um, after their prostate cancer um, surgery, especially radical prostatectomy. And uh, what we found was that there was a lot of distressed men out there, um, very little assistance and very little um, practical applications available to these guys. So, yeah, we just found ourselves in the right place at the right time. 
Okay, for a man newly diagnosed with prostate cancer, what do you think he should do to best equip himself for the experience ahead? Okay, so the first thing is to calm down. Okay, because one of the things about being receiving a diagnosis of prostate cancer is it need not be terminal. So there's all sorts of variations of prostate cancer. So the first thing is really to calm down. The second thing is to figure out, number one, what's the extent of prostate cancer. So if you're going to get prostate cancer, it might be that you've got a raised PSA, which is a measure in your blood. It's a measure of a particular protein that tends to indicate you may have prostate cancer. But usually you find out you've got prostate cancer through a biopsy, uh, through a, um, not a biopsy, I meant to say a... um, Digital rectal, digital rectal examination, uh, and then they'll do a biopsy, uh, and, and you'll get a score. You'll usually get a Gleason score, um, although now they're changing to a new scale. So if you get diagnosed with, <clears throat> pardon me, if you get diagnosed with prostate cancer, first thing is don't panic. The um, life expectancies of guys with prostate cancers is absolutely excellent, and most of the time, so long as you've been getting regular checkups, um, if you get it early enough, uh, your outcomes are usually pretty good. Um, to give you some sort of comparison, uh, something like 90% of men, 96% of men go on to live more than 10 years after their original diagnosis. Um, something like 90, 90% live more than 15 years and beyond after diagnosis. So <clears throat> admittedly, if you happen to be 90 at diagnosis, living to 110 or 115, probably unlikely, but... Um, usually the prognosis isn't as bad as what people think. The key issues with regards to prostate cancer, though, are um, obviously there's two big ones. One is um, incontinence that occurs um, as a result of the surgery. If, if you choose to go for what's called a radical prostatectomy, and that is where there's a removal, a surgical removal of the prostate gland, and uh, that often leaves men who aren't prepared for surgery with incontinence, uh, in other words, uh, leaking urine, um, uncon- not necessarily uncontrollably, but without intent. Um, and the second thing, which tends to be a lot graver for a lot of guys, is um, chronic, if not permanent, um, erectile dysfunction. So the inability to get a spontaneous erection, um, and that if you've if, for a lot of men, um, their ability to get um, an erection is part of their. Um, self-identity it's part of the big part of their relationship that they have with their partners um, and so on and so forth so those are the two really big ones Um, so yeah if you get diagnosed number one you're not necessarily going to die from it in fact if you had to pick a cancer and you'd never want to really pick a cancer but prostate would probably be one of the better ones to get prostate cancer also one one of the things if I could warn people about anyone listening to this it's one of those cancers where if you hear it's aggressive it's like describing a glacier as fast moving. Um, right. If you compare yeah. a glacier to a waterfall like Niagara Falls, well, one will you know basically have millions of liters of water flying every second. A glacier will move like one meter a year or something. So you can't. They they actually need to drop the whole phrase aggressive prostate cancer because prostate cancer does develop slowly. Doesn't mean you should ignore it. But if someone tells you you got aggressive prostate cancer, it's in my experience, it's usually someone who's fairly alarmist. Um, doesn't mean you ignore it, but um, it, it means that, okay, you've got time on your hands. So in other words, the benefit of having time is one of the things that I say to most of my patients is that um, go and get a second opinion. Go and get a second opinion. Always get a second opinion. 
Um, the number of times I've, I've worked with um, patients have walked through my door and they said, oh, you know, I've been diagnosed with what's called the Gleason 6. The Gleason 6, to give you some idea, is a fairly low range of cancer. Um, yet, in fact, the, a lot of urologists don't even consider it to be cancer at this stage. It's like, you know, like there's something there, but it's, 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 it's minute, it could yeah. be dormant. Um, it's almost a non-event. Um, so for those guys, most, most ethical urologists would probably say, you know, we'll do a wait and see, we'll do what's called active surveillance, we'll keep an eye on it. Um, understand, if you undergo a radical prostatectomy, you are going to suffer fairly severe physical consequences. So if we've got a guy who's in his early 50s, um, who's got an active sex life, and he's probably got another good 10, 20, 30 years of sex ahead of him. Why would we want to bring forward all of this, you know, trauma? Sure. Um, so the first thing is get a second opinion. I have had several patients over my professional career working in this area where they've had a Gleason 6, um, which, as I said, is very low range. And um, the surgeon has offered to perform surgery within a week. Okay. Now, to me, that's yep. totally unethical. Sure. And we've actually had guys who have gone decades without ever having had surgery, um, even though they originally were told to have surgery. Okay, just on that, Patrick, if someone is told to wait and see, or active surveillance, active surveillance. as it's now commonly called, how do you find um, men cope with that psychologically in general? Well, it's it's one of those things where every guy's going to be different. Um it's one of those things where my advice is just get on with life. Um, you can't control it. You might do some of the more basic things like, for example, uh, look at the issues that are highly correlated with having prostate cancer, being overweight, certain types of diet, um, inactivity, all this sort of stuff. It, it's all online in terms of what you can possibly do. Changing your diet seems to help. Um, but... My advice is if you get diagnosed with prostate cancer, choose life. In other words, just keep going. Um, get on with life and, and, and just stay active. Um, I'm speaking from personal experience here. Even though I don't have prostate cancer, I am actually undergoing um, treatment for brain cancer. And I, I found that when I choose to focus on day by day how things are going, um, it tends to make life a lot easier and a lot more manageable. Um, other than that, I think getting your physical fitness up is really, really important. Sure. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, it's certainly not a time to have to get your affairs in order and be thinking about, you know, where you're going to be buried. And it's not that type of cancer. So the thing is there, if you do get a diagnosis of prostate cancer, number one, calm down. Number two, um, don't catastrophize because... As I said, men live with prostate cancer. In fact, you know, there's a saying that most men um, die with prostate cancer but not from prostate cancer. So, you know, as I said, if you're going to pick one cancer to pick, if you could, it's probably one of the better ones to pick. Um, if you do have to undergo treatment, understand that you have a range of treatments. The unfortunate thing about the way things are structured here in Australia is that the person who does the biopsy... Um, is usually a urologist. Sure. Now, why I say it's unfortunate is because we now know that men are being limited to their choices of treatment. 
So if the guy who's doing the biopsy is a urologist, well, um, there's a really very high chance that he's going to recommend to you surgery. Why? Because most of these guys are surgeons. Um, I think it's a problem with the system. It's a bit of a conflict of interest. Not to say that urologists are unethical. Um, I've worked with some magnificent urologists who, you know, terrific guys, really dedicated to their to their um, patients, there for them, you know, day and night. However, there is a conflict of interest where you're not giving being given all your options. Um, so the first thing is is to really look at some of your options. Your options tend to be. Um, either you're going to go for uh, a removal of the prostate gland, um, there's radiation, um, which has become a lot more precise than what it was. Um, decades ago, radiation, you know, there were problems associated with radiation. Radiation now, because of the equipment that they're using, has a lot more precision and the outcomes are fairly um, considerably better. But maybe talk to a radiation oncologist. And the other one is looking at hormone therapy. Um, with radiation as well, you've got seed therapy, um, which is where they put radioactive seeds in those areas around where they figure, um, you know, the, 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 there's the tumor or whatever else. Here's the thing: not all outcomes are the same. Um, uh, even even with surgery, um, up until recently, um, there's been an enormous debate looking at um, the two different types of surgery. One is open surgery. Where this, which is the more traditional form of prostate removal. The other one is robotic. Now, there's been a great misunderstanding amongst a lot of um, men who undergo prostate cancer treatment that um, robotic is better because it's the newest thing sure. and so on and so forth. Here's the rule. Um, robotic surgery is only better if the guy who's doing the robot has got a crap load of experience. If you've got a guy who's done like half a dozen of them, it's like try, try imagining driving a double-decker bus if you've only ever learnt on a mini. You might have a license to be able to drive both, but you're not going to be able to park a double-decker bus. Sure. Right? Yep. So it doesn't, it doesn't make a double-decker bus better. You, if you've got a guy who's got hundreds of opens but almost no robotics under his um, professional experience level, then I definitely would not have him do sure. um, a robotic on me. Um, so the thing is, look at your options. Get get Get... Don't be afraid to upset your, your, your urologist as well. Most urologists expect you, um, or it's common for urologists to be asked for second opinions. Yep. They all get asked for second opinions. The, one of the challenges is, is that when I deal in my PhD work is that a guy gets diagnosed with prostate cancer and he likes his urologist, which is great if you like him. Yep. doesn't make him a great urologist. Sure. So a lot of patients then, rather than seek a second opinion, they'll go, oh, but he's such a good guy, you know. Yeah. He's a lovely fellow. I don't want to let him down. You're not letting him down. Um, recently, as I said, uh, um, I think I said, um, I had a guy who had a Gleason 6. He got told to have surgery within a week. Yep, you mentioned that. And um, he didn't need surgery. He took his biopsy results to another urologist who's a fairly good urologist um, and the urologist said there is no need for this surgery. Here's one rule of thumb as well. If, if you get diagnosed with prostate cancer and the surgeon says, I can operate on you next week, run for the hills. Um, that's usually a big warning sign because one of the things is if you do decide to go forward with surgery, um, you want to make sure that you're physically prepared for recovery. It's what we call prehabilitation. 
And this is one area where is sadly lacking in, in, in this particular area of treatment. So what I mean by prehabilitation is, once again, if you're overweight, drop some weight. Um, when it comes to your sex organs, your penis, your erection, um, you want to really get your erectile function as healthy as it possibly can be. Um, clean out the pipes, so yep. to speak. It's a bit coarse way of me putting it, but basically what you want to do is you want to basically um, have a lot of sexual contact, whether it's self-stimulation or whether it's aided with a partner or whatever sort of interesting sex life you might actually have. You want to have really your erectile function working as well as it can be. And most importantly is you want to go and talk to a physiotherapist who specialises in pelvic floor strengthening. I'm glad you've just mentioned that, Patrick. Um, that's a very integral part of my everyday. One thing that I'd like you just to expand on as you just raised it is partners. So when I get patients who come in for the first time, I'd say about 80% of the time they haven't got their partner sitting with them. So I always encourage them to come for the subsequent consults. Would you have anything to add for someone right now whose partner may have just been diagnosed with prostate cancer? What what should be their role? I think what I said right at the start is number one, calm down. The number of um, female partners who have rung me up and they said, my husband's going to die, my husband's going to die, my husband's going to die, and they're absolutely hysterical. And, you know, I make them a cup of tea and I'll go, yes, your husband is going to die, but maybe not for another 30 years, um, you know, it's yep, prostate cancer is not necessarily a death sentence. Um, and the treatments are improving all the time. Um, the problem with partners, I find, is that often there are communication issues. Sure. So the, the husband, especially if we're just assuming we've got heterosexual couples yep. here, um, often wives don't quite understand how important it is for a man to be able to maintain, gain, have an erection. His penis is very much part of his masculinity. His sexual function is part of his masculinity. And even if you don't have an active sex life, it doesn't mean that your husband doesn't want to maintain his ability to have one. It forms his identity in a large part. So one of the big problems that I discovered in my research was that inadvertently and without any form of meanful, um, not wanting to be mean, but what happens with a lot of partners, they inadvertently subvert the recovery of their husbands or they sabotage what happens to their husbands. And I'll explain to you what I mean by this. Sure. You've got a, you've got a, um, a urologist who says, look, you know, there's a chance this surgery is going to have a, a negative impact on your erectile function. And the wife will say something in order to try and protect the husband's feelings, but not realising that it's actually doing the worst by saying something like, oh, look, sex isn't important to us. Absolutely. I heard that all the um, time. Yeah. You know, so long as he's still alive. So a husband who hears from his wife, you know, we've been together for 20 or 30 or 40 years or whatever period of time, sex isn't important. It's like, excuse me, it's not important. Uh, it yeah, is to me. Yeah, yeah. And I always thought it was important to you too. Mm -hmm. um, psychologically, that's quite a kick in the nads. Um, literally, like psychologically, least, literally. Yeah. <laughs> Feels like that. Um, so when you hear, here's the thing, urologists, and I know this is going to come back and bite me, but... Um, there are many of the older generation urologists who I believe to be lazy in their 
approach to treatment and surgery in that it's all about we remove the cancer and forget about quality of life. And they hear their initial opinions being vindicated or supported by partners who go, look, sex isn't important to us. We don't care about his penile rehabilitation and so on and so forth. The guy is sitting there going, excuse me, but, um, you know, he may not have the courage or he may not have the confidence to discuss openly how he feels about this. So when I originally was doing this research, I'm thinking, God, why would a woman do that to a husband? Why yeah, would she yeah. say, you know, if she was going through breast cancer and the husband said, well, just cut off her tits. Yeah. You know, we him. would be outraged. Yeah. You know, we would say, you know, you have no right to say those sorts Absolutely. of things. Yet yeah. women, female partners especially say things. When I looked at Unintentionally. Well, when I looked at it, I'm going, why would a woman be so callous? Mm. And then I discovered they weren't being callous. They were actually trying to be protective. So they're thinking, look, he's going through so much stress and whatever else. If he doesn't have to perform sexually or if he doesn't have to look after me in an intimate level, then, you know, that's one less pressure on him. And, you know, and, and look, I can learn to live without sex. Though, interestingly, um, a lot of the women become very distressed after their men go through prostate cancer surgery um, because they lose intimacy, not just sexual intimacy, but they lose even just simple cuddles and holding hands so and the, stuff like so that. So the men actually retract from, from that exactly, as well? Exactly, because they, it's part of their self-confidence. As I said, they lose a, a very important part of their self-image, um, especially if you mix that with incontinence. If they're mm. having to wear, um, you know, adult... Continence pads. Yeah, which are basically adult nappies, um, you know... It really can have a huge debilitating effect psychologically. So here's the thing: um, if you're a partner of a of a um, of, of a person uh, who's undergoing prostate cancer surgery, um, ask them how they feel about their sex life. Mm. Ask that question directly. Ask them directly and say, "Look, you know, I will support you no matter what you want to do, but understand." I need to know from you how important is it for you to have your recovery. Don't assume that you know. Um, there's an assumption amongst too many urologists. Um, this is not me beating up urologists. This has come out of my my research um, where I've, we've interviewed 15 different urologists um, and 13 urological nurses, and each interview went for 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Um, and there are urologists out there who to this day believe if you're over the age of 60 and you and your partner don't admit to having an active sex life, it means you're not interested in sex. Well, I can tell you in my other parts of my practice, which aren't prostate cancer related, my oldest patient is about 80. Right, yeah. Actually, I had a 90-year-old once who said to me, he goes, look, I need your help because I've got this new 80-year-old girlfriend and I can't keep up with her and, you know, can you give me some advice? And yeah. So understand, um, people, no matter how old they are, don't necessarily lose interest in sex. A lot of people lose interest in bad sex, but they don't <laughs> lose interest in sex as such. So here's the thing. The guy may not be actively sexual with his wife, but he may still masturbate regularly. Sure. Um, and he, or he might have some sort of private situation, in which case <laughs> women listening to this going, yeah, forget about him having an erection. That'll mean he'll never go and <laughs> cheat on me. Um, it doesn't work that way either. So... So I've come up with an observation myself, Patrick, um, from working with men, particularly with prostate cancer as well, because I've had the older patients come to me and say, I know the surgeon's going to fix my cancer and the physio will help with my continence, um, but I'm really concerned about my sexual function. Uh, my summation of all this is that, and you can 
disagree with me because I'm asking you as a man, as a female trying to learn from men. And a clinician, I hope. So my phrase is, so so long as a man is breathing, his desire to have sex or the potential to have uh, a sexual relationship is extremely important to him. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, In the non-cancer side of my practice, one of the most the biggest areas of of growth has been um, guys who have absolutely no sexual appetite whatsoever. Okay. So a lack of sexual desire is often a big problem for some men. Okay, so this can actually occur in uh, prostate cancer we just touched on. And non-prostate cancer. And non-prostate cancer. So if you have a situation where you've got that... He may not want to have sex, but he still wants the ability to have an erection. An erection. So it's not about right. sex. So his erection, erection is a sign. The strength of an erection, it's to, to some men, I don't say all men, it's a generalization, but it's a sign of masculinity. So whilst men may not, not all men are interested in having sex all the time or, or on a regular basis, it's still, it's a sign of their vitality. It's a sign of who they are. Um, it's based on cultural stereotypes to some extent. Um, but, yeah, your ability to have an erection. Um, we tend to... People who, who can't have erections, we tend to think of, oh, they're getting old, they're getting... Yep. You know, they're, they're not masculine. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they... There's a whole bunch of things associated with not being able to... You can't be a real man if you can't have coitus. Mm. Um, one of the things you also said was... Um, you asked me at the start, how would you prepare? And, yeah. and I was saying it's incredibly important that you go and see a physiotherapist who specialises in pelvic floor strengthening. Because if you don't, um, sorry, if you do, what we find, you know, there's paper after paper now showing that your ability to overcome incontinence or recover from post-prostatectomy incontinence is is highly increased. Once again, um, if you're going through the public system, um, don't don't depend on what you're being told because you won't be told almost anything. You really need to go and do this stuff for yourself. Um, And just on that, um, in Australia we actually have the extended care plans. So for a physiotherapy or uh, probably the psychology consultations perhaps as well, but I could be wrong there, um, you can actually get a a government-assisted funding Okay, so let's talk about psychologists. Yeah. Right? They don't know anything about this area. Sure. Unless they've got special... Like, you hear guys go, oh, but I've been to see a psychologist. Yeah, well, it's like saying, you know, you've been to a guy who makes cheese on toast sandwiches. It doesn't make him a chef. Mm. Um, So my point there is, is that um, you need to go to someone who has specialty skills in this one area. So not all physiotherapists know how to do pelvic floor strengthening. Not all of them have the right equipment um, to be able to show you what muscles to engage and so on and so forth. The other thing is, and, and this is where trying to find the right person is really challenging. Um, you may have to resort to different books and stuff like that because you might not be able to find the clinician who has that particular skill. But one of the things is um, if I'm looking at what I'm doing with men now, um, sexual reskilling before the prostatectomy um, is an important area. So I'll explain to you what I mean by that. Yes, please do. Sexual reskilling means that, okay, let's say you're 62. I'd say that's 62. my age. Okay, so you're 62. Let's say you've been having an active sex life for 40 years. But a pretty, you know, it's pretty much the same one that you've had for 40 yeah. years, probably with less intensity. You might take a bit more time. But if your whole sex life revolves around just your penis mm-hmm. and you lose your penis, yeah. um, 
That's why this whole condition is highly debilitating because the guys are going, well, hold on a second. Um, our footy team has now lost its best player <laughs> and all the rest of them are like under 12s and they're all playing first grade. Okay. What do I do now? Yeah. So here's the thing. You need to develop your other skills in other areas, um, whether they're skills with your, your hands, your mouth, um, even your imagination. There's all sorts of fantastic things that you could do. When you, give pe when you give men sexual options, when you give men sexual plans on how to pleasure their partners, whether gay or straight, it doesn't really matter. Principles still apply. Um, most of these guys, if it's all about the dick, um, they're absolutely lost. Yeah. Um, and we know that not a lot of guys at this day and age are getting their sexual function recovery anything like what their pre-operative or pre-treatment. Yeah, that's the big hoax as well. Like I've heard surgeons go, oh, there's 80% chance you're going to get as much as what you had before the surgery. It's a bunch of BS. I've never met a guy who's been 80% what he had before. I've seen guys who've had huge improvement, but I've never met a guy who's, who's got as much as he had before his surgery. Um, and that's both robotic and open surgery. It's also to say, here's an important point, however, and this is why I'm saying maybe look at alternate Western treatments. And by that, I'm not saying go on to, you know, naturopathy and stuff like that. What I'm saying is think about maybe looking at whether you're a candidate for seed therapy. What we found now is that the data that's been collected over the last decade has showed um, radioactive seeds um, actually have very low levels of negative impact on quality of life. Erectile function tends to be better with those guys. Um, um, radiation is making a very big comeback because the equipment used in radiation treatment has really, really improved. It's a lot more precise. Um, the Cancer Council and some of these authorities really do need to update their websites yeah. because some of the websites are quoting damage due to radiation, but we're talking like ancient history. Compared to what's actually happening in clinics e today. Exactly. One of the things that a lot of guys don't realise is they're getting their biopsy by a urologist and the urologist goes, oh, you know, the best thing to do is to have it cut out and so on. And look, if I was a urologist, I'd be honest, I'd be saying exactly the same thing and depending on the cancer. Um, but the thing is, I would advise that you speak to a radiation oncologist who specialises in this particular area as well. So both Especially surgeon, if you can't yeah. afford treatment. I would prefer to go and have radiation oncology, prostate cancer radiation oncology, through someone who's good um, than someone who's been around for too long who routinely doesn't do what's called nerve-sparing surgery um, and so on and so forth. On top of that, if you're low on money... Um, Right now, we're only talking from an Australian perspective. Um, most of the cost of radiation oncology is met by the government. Absolutely. So you've got guys who are putting themselves into hock for 30 grand plus to go and have robotic. And it may not necessarily And it be. may not necessarily, it may not be necessary. They might be able to be, be you know, easily addressed uh, or, or practically, not easily, but, um, you know, well, their, their condition may be able to be successfully addressed through radiation. Uh, hormone therapy, I'd probably um, stay away from. They tend to use hormone therapy um, for guys who have advanced cancer. Now, hormone therapy, basically, just to give you some layman's version of it, is where um, they rob you of your testosterone. Not rob, rob's probably the wrong word, but Surprising. basically they drain you of your testosterone. So you become chemically castrate. Now, the reason is, is that a long time ago, 
there were there was a study or there was some sort of link between testosterone and the advancement of prostate cancer. So what they believe is that with hormone therapy, there's no direct impact physically because they're not removing the prostate and everyone goes, oh, well, this is good, you know, I, I don't have erectile dysfunction. But hormone therapy kicks in later on with a whole bunch of nasties, um, which include things like, um, you know, you basically go through a version of male menopause. So if you go onto hormone therapy and you don't prepare for it with diet and especially with um, exercise, which is weight resistant exercise, you've got an almost 100% chance of developing osteoporosis. Um, you, you develop, uh, you go through cold flushes, hot and cold flushes, you get very tired, um, irritable, um, your concentration just basically plummets. I've had patients who have been on hormone therapy who really struggle with hormone therapy. Um, so we've talked about you've got a diagnosis now. Um, yes. Yep. I think we've covered most of those we have, areas. We have. Uh, just on, in terms of since we have actually switched across to the advanced um, scenario of prostate cancer, where do you feel uh, the partner's role is here? Should, should, should they continue to seek the uh, physical relationship uh, or any other suggestions in terms of that sexual component for men with advanced prostate well, here, Here's the good news for partners. If we leave the dick out of the equation, uh-huh. things can actually improve <laughs> remarkably for partners. Okay, well, like so I've had women. I've had women who, you know, they haven't had an active, enjoyable sex life in decades, and their husbands have come to me post prostatectomy, and you know, their whole entire sexual focus is around their penis, and penetration and, you know, wham-bam, thank you, ma'am, sort of approach to sex. So we've had women who have had low levels of sexual desire. And the interesting point is, it's not that it's something hormonal or something mental. It's just they're sick of lousy sex. Okay. Right? So here's the thing. Um, If any of you have ever played chess and you lose your queen, you know it's like one of the worst players ever to lose because that's the one you depend on to do most of the hard work. Okay. But if you routinely, if you gave up your queen, if you played chess without having a queen to start off with Mm -hmm. and you learnt the powers of all your other players and how to use them in sequence and their strengths and their patterns and how they can support each other, you could actually become a much better chess player. So here's the thing. If you're going to go through prostate cancer, practice not using your penis for three months Okay. Beforehand. You think that would so be a ha- worthwhile experiment? Well, one of the things that a lot of people don't realise is that, number one, if you've, if you've had a prostatectomy, you've had your prostate removed, you may not be able to have an erection, but you can still experience orgasm because the nerve that's responsible for orgasm is called the pedendal nerve. It runs along the top of the penis, and that particular nerve bypasses the prostate gland. So the large majority of men, so long as you've had a surgeon that pretty much knows what they're doing uh, and you hadn't had issues beforehand... Um, you know, you should be able to maintain orgasm function. Um, the thing is, really, if we could get guys focusing, like, and it's hard because they're thinking, oh, I'm going to go through surgery, I'm going to go through this. It's hard to be sexually... Motivated. Motivated when you know... Mm. There's no nice way of putting it. You're sure. about Yeah, so... But the, the thing is, the one thing that I found and my study seemed to show is that those couples that maintain some sort of sexual intimacy as soon as they can. Upon diagnosis? No, 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 straight after the surgery. Okay. Oh, no, they maintain it, but also women take more control of their sexual... Um, Assertiveness, n- maybe? Well, it could be. It's not just assertiveness. 
but you don't leave responsibility for your own sexual satisfaction to your partner. Sure, okay. There has to be more communications, what it takes, you know, to be pleasured properly, what feels good, what, you know, what appeals to them. Um, So, yeah, I've had, you know, in in one of the lectures that I think is online, I don't know if this part was cut out, but I talked about um, once... um, I met this woman and she was in her late 60s and um, we were discussing sexual options and I often work with couples and and I said, so, you know, in terms of your sexual repertoire, um, is oral sex part of that menu? Yeah. And she goes, oral sex? And mm-hmm. I said, yes, you know, mouth on yeah. genitalia. She goes, oh, no. And I said, <laughs> you on him? No. Him on you? No. Both... She goes, oh, no, I'm okay with me on him, but I yep. won't let him okay. perform moral on me. And I said, okay, why is that? Is it a cleanliness thing, a religious thing, cultural? She goes, oh, no, he's he's terrible at it. And I said, what do you mean? It Was this she, in front of the, the gentleman? No, 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 he had left. Okay. So he said, um, she goes, oh, no, he's terrible at it. And I said, when you say he's terrible, she goes, it's like he's trying to remove the stain off a shirt. she goes one day he was down there I was in agony he thought I was in ecstasy and um I thought he might have actually tore off my clitoris and (laughs) trying to fight back the you know the so here when I said before that sometimes post-prostatectomy or sex can actually be a lot better for the partner it's not because sex has to um cease sex can actually be forced to evolve to something which is much better. So in this particular case, I actually spent a couple of sessions just teaching this guy proper... Technique. Technique. So his wife came back to me about a month later going, I don't know what you said to Fred, but, (laughs) you know, it's the first time in 30 years, you know, I've actually experienced pleasure in this area and so on and so forth. So this is where I talk about sexual reskilling. Yep. And if you think about it, you have... Although I've got to be careful, you know, I, I usually say to men, you have 10 fingers, although I had a patient a few <laughs> weeks ago who actually only had eight fingers. Um, I had that recently because I say for pelvic floor exercises, can you please lift your nuts to your guts? Yes. And one of my patients, in fact, two now, said, sorry, but I don't actually have any from testicular cancer surgery previously. And they haven't had the... They um, haven't had the, um, the prosthetics. Prosthetics. Prosthetics, yes. Okay. So, okay. Things, so here's the thing. Um, what we find in terms of return of, assuming you've had nerve sparing, and there's basically three versions of it. If you have full nerve sparing, which is very hard to tell because there's no real audit as to whether or not the urologist has actually done it correctly, um, he will preserve, there's two nerve channels, the cavernous nerves, which run along each side of the prostate gland. Um, if he's managed to preserve both of those nerves, then your chances of a return of erectile function are at their greatest. However, you still need rehab. Um, If he's only done one side, it's called unilateral nerve sparing. And if he's removed both of those nerves because either he's the type of guy who goes, it's all about the cancer or um, your cancer was advanced and they had to go for greater margins, um, you might have had what's called non-nerve sparing. Um, Okay, let's get a little bit more specific with the... Sorry, did you... By the way, with non-nerve sparing... Um, there is pretty much the only thing that you can do to get erections if you've had non-nerve sparing is pretty much injection therapy 
which we can talk about later if you like. Um, yeah, that, that's actually or, what I wanted to move from. Or to go to, like the tablets themselves, and the tablets we're talking, things like Viagra, Levitra, um, Cialis, um, they've been found to be fairly ineffective um, as far, if you've had non-nerve, because basically you've got no nerve channels which are providing erections anymore. Absolutely. So we can go one step back from that, Patrick. Yep. Penile rehabilitation mm -hmm. uh, was developed to try and assist men post-prostatectomy. Mm -hmm. uh, when do you think it's appropriate for a man to actually start on penile rehabilitation? Um, when the surgeon says it's okay to start. And this is an important part. Um, we need to get a clear... Our, our penile re rehabilitation process involves different elements, but one of them is replacing the nocturnal erections through the use of a penile pump. Okay. Um, which I get guys to use. There's, there's science... that There are studies supporting the use of penile pumps. Um, there's still a lot more research that needs to be done. The problem is with a lot of surgeons, they send men off to sex shops to buy a piece of crap, $50 pump or whatever devices. else, non-medical devices. What I would highly recommend to every man out there is you buy yourself a proper medical penile pump. If it costs you four or $500, understand, it is still money well spent. Chances are you've just spent anywhere between 15 and 20 grand on a prostatectomy. Mm -hmm. You don't go to Aldi to buy a penile pump. And most of the pumps we've seen, you need proper instruction on how to use them. Um, and they're predominantly used to replace the nocturnal erection. So that's part of it. But I can't get a guy starting on post-prostatectomy recovery um, until I get the clearance from the surgeon that there's no bleeding or sure. there's no complications or whatever else. Because uh, if there are complications, we don't want the guy doing himself injury. Okay. But let's say the surgeon comes out and he says, well, look, you know, six to maybe, you know, six to uh, ten weeks or whatever else post-prostatectomy, I would say is a good time to start. Um, once again, you've got the green light from the surgeon. Um, the key is this also, and this is a really important point, the earlier you start, the better off you will be because the nerves themselves begin to deteriorate almost straight away. So, guys, here's the thing. You know, they, a lot of doctors will say to men who have had or they're about to undergo surgery, they go, oh, usually comes back within two years. Mm -hmm. What they should be saying to men is, if you do rehab, if you exercise your organ, if you regularly engage in sexual practices, even if they don't avoid, they don't uh, require necessarily touching of genitals, but just getting sexually excited, getting, you, you gotta remember your most powerful sexual organ you have is the space between your ears. You know, your brain is the most powerful sex organ, plus your skin is the biggest sex organ you've got. Um, you need to become sexually active straight away. But here's the thing. Most guys go, oh, well, I've been told it can take up to two years for it to recover. If you do nothing for two years, your recovery is like if you broke your leg and you don't put it in a cast yeah. and you don't do any physio or anything else, well, you're not going to be able to run a marathon after that. You'll end up with a twisted, deformed leg, which might even fall off. Um, so the thing is, what we have found through research and a number of papers are now starting to come out is that the amount of improvement two years after the event is negligible. There might be some, let's say, going from very bad to just bad. Yeah, like four. But but 4%. no one goes from but no one goes from like bad to great. No one goes from average to good. Okay. It, the the amount of improvement after two years is, and this is why I often despair when I get a guy who comes 
and sees me and he says, well, look, I had my surgery, you know, three years ago or four years ago. They didn't tell me to do anything. They gave me some Cialis pills and blah, blah, blah. And as soon as that script ran out, I didn't use anything. What can you do for me? Well, not yeah, a huge amount. Not a huge amount. Not as far as penile rehabilitation is concerned. So the thing is, get, get active on it. I'm going to tell you about a boy lives inside me it's been there all of my life hi this is dr joe thank you so much for listening to our program today and we're pleased to let you know that we will be having weekly podcasts not fortnightly as originally proposed and this is because of the popularity of our podcast we're getting so many emails so many questions and so much feedback and Melissa and I greatly appreciate it. What we'd really love you to do is share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download off Spotify or subscribe to thepenisproject.org and then you'll get a weekly email of our newest releases. Also feel free to send us a review and this will greatly help in our ongoing ability to bring you new and fresh information as that's the way we build what comes next. We also have show notes attached and this gives a bit of a background into any additional resources or explanations of what we're talking about. Finally, it's my great pleasure to let you know that PROST, the exercise program which sponsors our podcast, is now available on a USB resource for any man diagnosed with prostate cancer an exercise program. Clinicians can buy these as well as the everyday bloke. So feel free to check out prost.com.au. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Those dread dark days I learned to value each and every one Of those warm afternoons Boys on their bikes Shooting stones at each other through the trees We tried to deny the going down of the sun We're just having too much fun